A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. When I was dealing with Afghanistan, we had a major problem with improvised explosive devices, roadside bombs. Jamie Shea has worked as a senior NATO official for decades. It was sometime in the 2010s that he found that these bombs were becoming a real issue for the alliance's troops. The problem for NATO was that the Taliban could manufacture these in seconds, spending just a couple of dollars. A bit of explosive, a mobile phone to activate device, dead easy to plant in the ground, no big tech required, and yet they would blow up NATO vehicles, NATO soldiers on TV, 12 British soldiers killed in one attack. What are we doing in Afghanistan? It looked very, very bad. So Jamie was tasked by NATO to come up with a solution. As solving this problem was difficult, it required coordinating with the militaries of many, many countries, many defence contractors, and a whole range of civilian and governmental institutions. We tried military solutions, spending billions, and I mean billions of dollars, protective vehicles, protective clothing, hospitals, satellite detection of where the earth had been moved, expensive vehicles to clear roads by blowing up the mines. They came back that same night. It was just like mowing the grass. You had to Always repeat, repeat, repeat. He knew that better coordination was needed to protect NATO troops and defend and deter their adversaries. This is not the solution. They're attacking us at our weakest point and they're exploiting their strongest point. We've got to turn it around. We've got to attack them at their weakest point and exploit our strength. Jamie spent two years speaking to the FBI, Homeland Security, Interpol, manufacturers, customs officers, everyone he could think of who was relevant. The goal was pretty simple cut off their cash and eliminate their access to bomb components, all to protect NATO troops. It cost a fraction, a fraction of the money that we were spending on military protection. It didn't make the problem go away entirely, but it greatly reduced the number of explosions and therefore the PR effect of having NATO soldiers being blown up in Afghanistan. So it takes a network to defeat a network. This was a rare win in the era of global enduring disorder an instance where coherent collective action was taken. It was possible because NATO works. The UN is the exact opposite. It doesn't work. So why does NATO work and the UN doesn't? I'm Jason Pack. And I'm David Patrick Arikos, and this is Disorder. 
a podcast where we examine a pressing global issue, like climate change, tax havens or neopopulism, where we look at how these issues have come to be part and parcel of our global disorder, and where we finish by proposing solutions to restore effective collective action that could ultimately help us find at least some semblance of order. This week, we're very fortunate to have David Patrick Harakos stepping in as our co-host. Alex is taking a much-needed breather to tend to her famous disorderers, her teens. Don't worry, she'll be back next week. But in the meantime, David is going to share with us some of his experiences as a war reporter while we look into the role of NATO. Now, David, something that people don't know is that Lord Ismay, the first secretary general of NATO, said NATO exists to A, keep the Russians out, B, keep the Germans down, and C, keep the Americans in. Sounds like my sort of chap. Lord Ismay was onto something. NATO has an emotional role, which is beyond just the coordinating militaries to make sure that, you know, a French missile system can go on an American plane. And really, from its beginning, and we've almost lost this... NATO was about getting the French and Germans, these adversaries who'd fought not just from World War I, but all the way from 1870 until the end of World War II, to have a collective project. NATO was an emotional thing to get these former adversaries together. I think that's a really good point because we think of NATO now and actually, you know, even me as a purely military alliance. But it is more than that, right? It's an aspiration. It's aspirational. We think about you can't divorce NATO from its its foundings. You know, it is about a certain type of view of the world. It is about bringing together countries that share democratic values. And finally, look, let's be honest, in today's climate, it may once again be about keeping the Russians out, even if by proxy. All the major global institutions, the UN, NATO, the EU, have this aspirational component. People were made to feel more European, and they believed in this European identity. But the UN is a failure. Very few people, because of the existence of the UN, feel that they're international citizens or feel, oh, you know what? The UN is going to save me if something goes wrong in the world. Why has NATO been so successful, David? I mean, it's been successful, I think, because everybody buys into it and everybody understands the need for it, or at least until they did until Donald Trump came along. There's certain things in life that you have to sell because maybe they're not so great and you you got to really sell them and push them. NATO, it really, really does make sense. It makes sense, you know, in parts of the world where history never left, in the eastern parts of Europe, in the places that really are under threat. They really value it. This is an alliance that sells itself. It's in the collective memory of every Eastern European that the Russians had controlled their political life and they don't want that. And I think security is something that people can connect to much easier than something like, oh, regulating free trade. Free trade is an abstract concept, but your security that there aren't terrorists who are going to blow you up or that a major state isn't going to invade you, this resonates in people's hearts. And if there's this institution that they've seen protect them and deter Russia, they want to be a part of it. Yeah. And. They want to be a part of it, not because it's cool, but because it's just needed. It's needed now more than ever. The thing about NATO is that for a long time it was seen as passé because it was all about hard power in an age where people thought that it no longer mattered because everybody sheltered within the American military umbrella. And when the Soviet Union fell, it was the end of history. There were no more threats and so on and so forth. We now all know that was nonsense. And NATO has never seemed to me to be more relevant, more needed or more important. 
David, you hit the nail on the head. People understand when their security is threatened and they look to the state to protect them. And it's even better if the thing that's going to protect them is collective and they trust it. So to figure out how NATO works in giving this aura of protection and trust, whereby an Estonian knows that the skills of Estonia and cybersecurity are going to be trusted and used, and American knows that American hard power is going to protect Americans from nuclear apocalypse, we spoke to four experts with significant experience working inside NATO, coordinating with it, and analyzing its role in the world, all with slightly differing views on the role of the organization. We'll start with Jamie Shea who in his role as Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges at NATO, saw firsthand how the alliance could rally collective will to address problems of the commons like climate change or terrorism. Because when it comes down to it, NATO and its adversaries are actually living on the same planet, and hence they face many of the same challenges and could actually benefit from working together. But such collaboration only works where there's trust, driving cooperation to tackle truly global problems. For a while, you can have what we call here in the UK cakeism. Yeah? You could have your cake and eat it too. You can have your geopolitical rivalries, but you can still cooperate. But unfortunately, what we're seeing with both Russia and China is we've come to a breaking point where, unfortunately, confrontation is taking over. For example, Russia, China, and the United States were still willing to sign a joint declaration in the UN Security Council ahead of the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty, saying that they would work together to prevent the further spread of nuclear weapons. They could not agree on a final declaration after the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty Review Conference because the Americans wanted language regarding the safety of these nuclear power stations. Russia objected. So why do I tell you this? It shows they could still see issues selectively in a compartmentalised way where they could work together, shutting out areas of disagreement. But unfortunately, like in a bad marriage increasingly going sour, the elements of confrontation become more important and snuff out progressively the vestigial areas of cooperation. While at NATO, did you encounter anything that made it more difficult for NATO as an organization to tackle collective action challenges? Well, NATO's got certain advantages compared to other international organizations when it comes to sticking together in unity. It deals with the real existential stuff peace, security, defence, my survival as a state, you know, my ability to not go down as a result of a nuclear holocaust or something. For states, these are very, very important. So there is a sense of don't mess with this. This is too important. You know, you don't play politics with NATO. That said, of course, there have been difficult times. There is one moment where, yes, I do recall that there were very big rifts in the alliance, paralyzing action. That was during the Bosnian conflict uh, between 1992 and 1995, where many Europeans uh, were involved in a UN peacekeeping operation on the ground called UMPRO-4. They'd committed large numbers. Those troops were very poorly armed and highly vulnerable to being taken hostage by the Serbs if NATO used air power to punish the Serbs for what was considered to be their responsibility for the massacres and the human rights violations. On the other hand, the United States, with no troops on the ground, felt that we should have much more robust action through airstrikes from the safety of 15,000 feet. And so there was a contradiction because the Europeans worried that if the Americans started dropping bombs on Serbia or the Bosnian Serbs, the Serbs would immediately execute European NATO peacekeepers. So that was a very, very difficult time because we 
found that both sides of the Atlantic were following diametrically opposed policies, which instead of helping each other, were basically blocking each other. And that lasted nearly for two years until it was finally resolved in 1994. And I think one big lesson for NATO is that don't get involved in anything if the United States is determined to follow a different policy to the Europeans. If that's the case, keep NATO out of it. A lot of lessons there. And I think one is that NATO is an idea, and that requires a myth. And the myth of NATO's place for collective defense, and that this is the institution that will protect you from nuclear holocaust, is a very important myth. NATO seems to be something like mother and apple pie. People tend to like it, and it has this cozy kind of feeling. But yet, in the British Brexiteer mentality, Brussels is hated, and evil Eurocrats and institutions and committees... They happen to forget that in Brussels is also this institution that they're very keen on and that they like. How has NATO been so successful as an idea and a concept that it is conceived like your mother and apple pie? I suppose that maybe the first reason is, of course, it deals with security and defense and therefore things where many countries realize perfectly well, particularly in a more dangerous age with Putin you know, throwing his weight around in Ukraine. These countries, Baltic states, you know, very small countries, they know very well that they can't defend themselves. So there's a, a natural acceptance that they need to protect her, the United States, uh, NATO, uh, and the public generally goes along with that. Also, I suppose another reason is because you know NATO doesn't punish countries that, that don't meet their obligations. Maybe that's a weakness. There are some sort of reasons why I think that NATO has remained basically popular. So given this NATO perspective to need for both PR reasons and structural reasons to be safe, to never stick its neck out too much, to be defending Is it possible for NATO to be aggressive rather than defensive? I've always wondered, given Putin's hostilities in Ukraine, could we have had offensive cyber actions, say, to turn the lights off in St. Petersburg or jamming the Russian comms as they are mobilizing their troops? Or are we not in a world where the West can be proactive rather than reactive? in confronting the enemies of democracy and global order. Would NATO carry out a cyber attack against the Russian army? No. But would a NATO ally with the the smiles and the the winks and the nods of of all of the other allies do it under its own authority? Absolutely. To some degree, that is important in terms of not giving Putin the sort of excuse that he wants to declare that this is a war between NATO and Russia. Because, you know, Putin's whole narrative is that NATO threatens Russia, the Russians are fighting a defensive war in Ukraine, against this encroaching NATO threat. So in a way, it helps by creating firm red lines for NATO to try to avoid getting sucked in and playing into that narrative. NATO can do proactive things. I mean, for example, in 1999, without a UN Security Council resolution explicitly authorising the action, NATO bombed Serbia. And Kosovo was part of Serbia in those days for 78 days to force the Serbs to leave Kosovo and allow a transitional arrangement under the United Nations after the ethnic cleansing that the Serb President Milosevic carried out there. That, you could argue, was pushing the envelope, right? But at the time, the Allies felt that given the humanitarian situation and the experience in Bosnia, it was justified. Of course, we know that the alliance and NATO itself can be used for proactive and occasionally creative missions. So that begs the question then, when Putin was massing 
more than 100,000 troops encircling three Ukrainian borders. Why was there no offensive cyber jamming their signals? Why was there not certain signals of deterrence sent? Obviously, there were frantic press conferences about the behind-the-scenes meetings that the alliance was doing. People were really thinking about these things, and Olaf Scholz was flying to Moscow, and Macron was flying to Moscow, and Biden was, you know, talking to all the allies and getting them on board. But why was it so reactive? It's always about de-escalating the situation. These things are never about escalating the situation. So I think diplomats and to some degree military officers are sort of trained in their DNA in de-escalation. Except the Russians have the idea of escalate to de-escalate. That is true. And but any chess player or gambler can tell you sometimes you raise to yeah. get the other guy to fold. But, but, but you're right. But another reason is because diplomats, all of us really, tend to feel that the way it played out in the past will be the way it played out now. Dealing with Ukraine, you had a series of Russian military build-ups over the last couple of years, you know, big exercises around the border. But at the end of the day, having you know rattled the sabre, they go back to barracks. It's an exercise and we breathe a sigh of relief. And therefore, always a sense, well, you know, it's going to be the same this time. You know, they'll try to scare us, but they don't really want to risk a war. So it's how the hell do you effectively have deterrence in the grey zone vis-a-vis countries that you don't have to provide any kind of security guarantee to because they're not members, but where you can't leave them alone because it would be betraying them, but it would also be encouraging somebody like Putin to develop further ambition. Now, to be perfectly frank here, before February the 24th, the new form of deterrence was tried. Putin was threatened with the mother of all sanctions. And they were spelt out in advance, uh, particularly by the Biden administration. It was made clear that NATO would help the Ukrainian armed forces to resist, for instance. It was made clear, you know, what the isolation of Russia would be. And I suppose the mistake that was made, if mistake it is, is people thought that this sort of bigger package of, you know, you're going to be isolated, there are going to be sanctions, we're going to help, you know, the Ukrainians, don't do it, that this was going to work. And the real issue for us is if, if the mother of all sanctions don't work, what is going to work in terms of this deterrence in the uh, grey zone? So to a certain degree of military preparation in advance of a conflict and not just threatening the mother of all economic sanctions is now part of this deterrence package. Well, Jason, the discussion with Jamie had me thinking, especially about Ukraine. It was made clear, Jamie told us, that, you know, NATO would help the Ukrainian armed forces to resist. And I think that it just shows that for many countries, the existence of NATO, even for countries that are not members, is existential. There is nothing more existential to Ukraine right now than the war. And I think it's really important because existential is a word thrown around a lot in discourse. You know, this problem is existential, that problem is existential. The Russian threat to Ukraine, Russian imperialism, which says there is no such thing as Ukraine, that Ukrainians are... Can't get more existential than that. They're merely confused Russia. It can't. So what has been made clear is the degree, two things, one, to which NATO is relevant, and two, how it matters on an emotional level to the people dying in that crisis. And in addition to Jamie's being adamant that NATO works, it's non-controversial because it stays out of the domestic politics. It doesn't tell the Ukrainians or the Estonians, you need to have this kind of economic policy or this view on Christianity. It's non-controversial. You get on with your business, you run your country, but 
when it comes time to defend you from, you know, being obliterated and wiped off the map, we'll help you. Exactly. Jason, it seems to me that when we boil all of this discussion down today, the question is, can the requisite consensus for major actions that we need to preserve some semblance of an ordered world be produced by the current American leadership? Because let's face it, there's no one else can do it or certainly no one else we want to be able to do it. Can this be done in this new era of enduring disorder? Now that America is a declining power, albeit gradually, and withdrawing from the world stage, at least for the moment. I'm always wary of, of, of predicting America's decline. But certainly, it's not the unipolar moment that we had before. So what do you think, Jason? That's the $64,000 question, David. In this world where America's power is relatively declining, how can it still be the linchpin and coordinating power for Western and democratic collective defense? It's a problem that Corey Shackey has had to reckon with throughout her career. She was on the National Security Council during George W. Bush's first term. She worked to set up the NATO response force. She believes acting defensively and signaling that you're acting defensively is key to maintaining NATO unity. I spoke to Corey about the role that the United States plays within NATO and its outsized role in coordinating responses to major security challenges. I do not believe other free societies would have mobilized to assist Ukraine's defense if the United States did not step forward to do so, in part because most small and middle-sized powers, that is, everybody except us, doesn't feel strong enough in their own agency to step forward and do so. So when the United States steps back, other states step back further. And when we step forward, other states feel safe enough to step forward. To get a sense of our values, I've come to feel that NATO is itself a value. It's something that most people can unite around. Do you agree with this idea that NATO can be a warm and fuzzy place for us and help us believe in the West as a concept and liberty as something that resonates with people and that they would themselves be willing to make sacrifices or die fighting for. Absolutely. And I think you have seen this over the course of the last five or six years. You know, what our disgraced former president was brilliant at was asking first order questions that if people like me were good enough at our jobs, my mom would know the answer to. But when President candidate Trump said, why don't allies spend more for their own defense? My mom said, yeah, why is that? And why is it that more Americans would be willing to defend Germany than Germans are willing to defend Germany? That doesn't make obvious sense to her. And by the way, her reflexes are right on both of those counts. What you saw happen in the change in American public attitudes across the president's term of office, though, was they saw the consequences of coming to a different answer than the warm fuzziness of standing shoulder to shoulder with your closest friends, the people in the international order who most share your values, and the people who have both the greatest willingness and the greatest ability to help you protect and advance them. And so what you saw was a 15-point drop in support for the president's three signature policies, opposition to alliances, 
opposition to trade and opposition to immigration. Because when friendly countries begin to be threatened, my mom actually wants to hold their hands and square her shoulders next to them and defend countries that we like, that share our values, that help us protect and advance our interests in the world. And that's the message to take. The United States as a global power and the predominant power in the order sees risks and trends before regional allies do. But when regional allies see them, they are both capable and willing to do more for the common defense. And that really matters not just for their security, but for ours. NATO is the home we go to when we are scared and when the people we care about most are scared. NATO has ideational value. And I think you sketched extremely eloquently how President Trump made the greatest case for the ideational value of NATO, just like the Brexiteers have made it for the EU. Speaking about how we feel and how NATO can maybe represent how we see our place in the world as Americans and Westerners, maybe you have some interesting anecdotes that you could share from when you were DOD desk officer for (laughs) NATO that tie together your beliefs about NATO as an important ordering institution and just how those things functioned and played out for you. Well, I went to work in Colin Powell's joint staff two weeks after Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990. And I stayed for, I guess, five years. And it was so much fun. So many important, specific policy questions about the nature of the international order and the advance of freedom, right? When President Bush was willing to invest the United States in the liberation of Kuwait from Iraq's invasion and willing to organize a global coalition of support for it on the argument that the international order is safe for all of us and prosperous for all of us because states cannot violate another state's sovereignty with impunity. So it was a privilege to help defend that argument and advance it and to put American power shoulder to the wheel. The United States is even stronger in the international order now than it was then, even though we don't feel it. And we ought not to be so fearful that other less powerful states have the ability to constrain us. We ought actually to be much more confident that the truths we hold to be self-evident are in fact universal aspirations. And we ought not to be so shy about making the case that what we want for the international order isn't just good for us, it's even good for the authoritarian states that oppose it. China doesn't get prosperous and strong without the liberal international order. Is there a crisis of confidence also when it comes for the righteousness of America to stand up and on occasion offensively defend the liberty that we value and the values that we think most humans want? I sincerely believe that we can deter our adversaries through sagely going on the offensive and undermining their abilities to threaten the global order. 
and not found ourselves in this mess? It's a very solid argument that I nonetheless don't agree with because I think the United States, by choosing not to go on the offense, we maximize the number of countries that will support us if they believe we are pushed into taking action. That's the Biden argument. I think the Biden argument is uh, we can't take action because escalation may result. They took a number of good steps early that gave other countries time to have their domestic policymaking process get to where we wanted them to be. I thought that was incredibly adroit. And I'm very much in favor of free societies using the tools of free societies to protect ourselves. And transparency and sharing information is a fundamental part of being a free society. So I love that we weaponized it and used it against a country that attempts to shield itself from judgment and information. I think that's a really smart way. But I do think for many countries whose support we want, and maybe even for my mom, that would make us look like the aggressors. And I think that makes clear that we're the good guys in this. After the break, we're going to hear a few different perspectives on what the core themes of the NATO alliance are. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. So for Corey, the battle for a functioning NATO comes down to a battle for liberal democratic ideals. Corey sees the importance of spreading that message. I mean, Britain, it's interesting, NATO is seen almost as passé. It's seen as this thing that's been around for a while. We Lots of people don't really understand it. Certainly, most people can tell you what Article 5 was. 
and it is the complacency of safety. But, you know, I go across several thousand miles to the east when I was in Ukraine earlier this year. And I went to all three fronts. I went to the southern front, the eastern front, and the northeastern front. Two things that struck me. First of all, everyone was so happy to see me. Jason, when, you, when you're British as a foreign correspondent and you spent 10 years abroad, everywhere you go, everyone says, oh, you're British, bloody Iraq. I was in Ukraine. Everyone was like, thank you, thank you. We love you. It was absolutely extraordinary. The second thing that they all said was that they wanted to join NATO. Or, and this is telling, a new security alliance that involved the Baltics, Poland and Britain, not the French and Germans who they were down on. But it's really interesting to me that what is seen as perhaps an unimportant or dead institution from a plane of safety is seen as vital to the very existence of a state on the same continent. I have a viewpoint, which is that the majority of people everywhere actually kind of like free speech and they kind of like the idea of collective security. It's been said that Iran is the biggest red state because if you talk to Iranians, people don't like the oppression that the Ayatollahs have brought to their country. They want to be able to express their opinions, to wear the clothes that they want to wear, and they get something like NATO or a constitution and a bill of rights. If we can keep these things simple, this is an institution which protects your security. This is an institution which allows you free speech. Don't you think that's going to be popular globally? We're not peddling bad goods here. We're not trying to sell snake oil. This is self-evident. It's needed even more so in a world of enduring disorder. So for Corey, the United States should use its soft power skills, persuading the people and possibly even the new leaderships of China, Russia and Turkey, that free markets and the liberal order is actually advantageous to their aims. That cell of liberty writ large is really what our next guest, Timothy Garton-Ash, is going to talk about. Garton-Ash has written about the spread of liberal democracy across Europe in his book, Homelands, A Personal History of Europe. I spoke to him about how we are seeing a backlash to that and what it means for the future of international institutions like NATO and the EU. A big mistake was to reduce liberty, which is always multidimensional, largely to one dimension, to the economic dimension, and to neglect the social and the cultural dimensions, to neglect solidarity and equality, to neglect community and identity, and how it came back to bite us from Brexit to Donald Trump, from Viktor Orban to Jarosław Kaczynski in Poland, wherever you look. So that's point number one, so that I believe that if we got the economics right, everything would follow, was a big intellectual mistake. This is the neoliberal mistake because the neoliberals thought that political freedom could be guaranteed economically. And we have lived 20 or 30 years living with the disastrous results of the reduction of a whole range of issues of communities and identities to economic issues, which cannot encapsulate them, correct? Correct. And what we're, we're rediscovering, both in the EU and NATO, is actually the importance of values and identities. That's a very good thing. There's almost an excitement about rediscovering the notion of struggle for certain values. The biggest failure, in my view, is not with NATO, because people didn't look to NATO to be a philosophy seminar or a church, right? They looked for hard military security. But they absolutely did look to Europe, to the European Union, to secure their democracies. Everyone from Spain, Portugal, and Greece 
leaving their fascist dictatorships to all the countries of Central and Eastern Europe leaving their communist dictatorships thought the European Union is going to guarantee our democracy. And actually, the EU not only permitted but facilitated the erosion of democracy in countries like Hungary and Poland. So I think the biggest catch-up here is probably on the side of the EU. That said, I think it's great that countries like Estonia are now in many ways setting the tone for NATO because these are countries who know the value of freedom and the value of democracy because for so long they had to do without it. Interesting that you see the EU as a more ideational and identity pillar than NATO. We had on Jamie Shea, the former deputy director for NATO and the crucial NATO spokesperson in the Kosovo War. And he postulated that NATO is actually an identity. Next to apple pie and mother, NATO is one of the few things that most people across the North American and European worlds can agree on. Whereas the EU has taken a direction to become more polarizing in opinion polls. So that if you ask people, do you believe in NATO or do you believe in the EU? And we're talking within European states, NATO gets a higher ranking on the opinion poll. I think NATO could play a identity role in protecting global order. Would you disagree? And do you see NATO in the EU as synergistic? How are they at odds? I would question the premise just empirically. If you look at people in Greece, particularly on the left or France, you get a very different view of NATO. I certainly don't. I think for many, many millions of Europeans, NATO is anything but motherhood and apple pie. And actually, some rather vague notion of Europe, quote unquote, content unspecified, is more like motherhood and apple pie, which are never quite what you hope they're going to be. So I doubt that very much. And I think that what what has happened is because the countries that come into NATO in Central and Eastern Europe are so passionate about them as a project for defending democracy, that has changed the discourse around NATO. And that witnessing a Russian invasion, previously neutral Swedes and Finns suddenly decide to join NATO. So I think it's it's, as it were, more down-to-earth, more security-driven than sort of ideational or, or identity-based. To your second point, I vividly remember last year at the Munich Security Conference, which is the great security get-together of the transatlantic West, the Secretary-General of NATO and the President of the European Commission standing literally shoulder-to-shoulder and saying, there's not a sliver of paper you can get between us on Ukraine. We have an identical position. And that was a remarkable moment because it used not to be true. I think there's a great advantage in that because obviously there's strength in, in, in that. But I think there's also a certain danger in that it means that the European Union, which was regarded as not necessarily 100% signed up to a US-led West is now increasingly identified with the US-led West. Timothy was bullish about the eventual spread of liberty, but not so much about the role of the US as a beacon of liberty for all Europeans. I can kind of see why. 
there's great disappointment amongst people like Timothy about Donald Trump and perhaps certain paths that the US has taken in, in, in recent years. Uh, that said, I still think the United States is the best hope for global leadership, especially when it comes to leading the way in this area. So Gordon Nash didn't exactly see NATO as a standard bearer for all our democratic ideals. Of course, Timothy is right. NATO is a building in Brussels. It's a way to exchange emails and to make sure that your missiles fit on somebody else's plane. It's the concept of one's organic community that's essential to motivate individuals for collective action, especially in a world where American power is either declining or America's legitimacy to lead is being questioned because they may have a a vision of maybe a more social democratic world or a more European world can resonate with people. Corey, on the other hand, is bullish about the fact that the U.S. is where the hard power is and where the convening power is and where the economic model is. People still do watch American sitcoms and they envy the wealth there and they want the liberty that they see. Corey, however, essentially upheld a center-right or neoconservative view about the role of liberal capitalism and the rule of law is winning the ideological battle globally in the long term. But our next guest takes a different approach. Charles Kupchan is professor of international relations at Georgetown University and the former director of European Affairs in the National Security Council during the Obama administration. He thinks that the United States is inevitably a declining power. And we discuss what this means for NATO. The world has always been a complicated place I do think that part of the problem is that we are moving into an era in which the United States doesn't enjoy the material or ideological primacy that it once did, right? When Pax America started back in 1941, the United States was in an unparalleled position of global primacy, especially when you put it alongside its main allies. Now, the liberal democratic world represents less than 50% of global GDP and will soon live in a world in which the largest economy will be that of China. Americans are going to have to get used to living in a world in which leadership may need to be more widely shared. You know, I think we will see, I hope, the consolidation, revival of a liberal international order anchored by the United States and its allies. But I think we will also see alternative orders out there, one anchored in particular by China. And one of the key questions in my own mind is how can we figure out how to manage a globalized and interdependent world when we do have these hybrid orders that we need to figure out how to integrate. Is it emotionally and ideationally important for us to believe in the West, in a unifying ideology or principle or institution? Can NATO be that institution? Or is there something else in democracy or Westernness that can rally us together? Well, I, I do believe in the existence of a community that is not just a function of interest. That is to say that we are tied to our friends and allies around the world through common interests, but also common values, and in fact, a common identity. There is a certain we-ness that brings us together. And the fact that NATO still exists 
decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that the countries of Europe still want to join it, that it has partners in all quarters of the globe. This says to me people have confidence in this organization and they want to see it stick around. Is NATO part of the institutional infrastructure of the West? Yes. Is it sufficient? No. NATO is one of many kinds of institutional connections that give substance to not just the transatlantic community, uh, but also the community of democracies that spans the world. And I think we're probably in a period of institutional innovation because we do need to catch up our diplomacy, our dialogue to new stuff, to governance of the cybersphere, to climate change, to the fact that we've just lived through a global pandemic. A lot of these things don't fall neatly on NATO's docket or any existing institution's docket. So I think we are heading into a period in which we may need some ad hocery when it comes to updating our institutional linkages. But NATO has certainly been a remarkable success story, and I think it's going to be around for quite a while. When the ideological and emotional battle for hearts and minds at home to believe in these principles that allow things like the EU and NATO to thrive and succeed. That's kind of what we heard from Timothy Garton Nash. He put forward a very strong and impassioned case for liberty, that what we are, and it's not just the West because it's Japan and South Korea and various Latin American democracies, is we are the people of liberty. And we have to win anew every generation that discussion. And that that's something that we can't have a more ordered world if we're not fighting that battle, having that conversation. Would you agree with that? I think that it's not just liberty, in part because if we just focus on liberty, then we could be back in this double-edged sword of the neoliberal triumph, right? Where the libertarians are going to say, get out of the way and just let's have a free-for-all. So I think it's liberty, but it's also mixed with delivering the goods, The reason we've been living through a scary moment in American politics, in British politics, in Italian politics, it's at heart that we have failed to deliver on the social contract. We cannot lose sight of the importance of people feeling economically secure, that they can feed their family, that they're bullish about their kids having a better life than they have. And so we just need to make sure that as we preserve liberty, we are mindful of making sure that we meet the basic needs of our citizenry. And that requires good policy and good politics. If you walk through NATO headquarters, it's really a quite remarkable experience because there are now 30 members of NATO. You hear multiple languages, and if you walk through a a military area, you see 30 different uniforms. It's just a kind of remarkable success story of how to make multinational cooperation work. And I do think that it matters over time. I mean, why can you now drive from France to Germany without seeing a tank, without a border guard, without changing money, right? Maybe you'll see a sheep But this is a border 
along which millions of people have died. And now it's geopolitically inconsequential. And that's because the EU and NATO working together have changed the world. They have moved us to a space in which geopolitical rivalry is gone, hopefully for good. But the way the world is going, let's not count our chickens before they hatch. So my takeaway here would be, let's look just at how amazingly successful the alliance has been. And I don't just mean NATO, I mean this broader partnership. What can we do to make sure it endures? Let's make sure we guard what we have built. Because if we're not careful, if we're not mindful of just how precious this is, we risk letting it slip away. While they differ on certain issues, it's clear that Jamie, Corey, Timothy and Charles all feel that NATO has been a roaring success, that it's adapted to the challenges of coordination and it still possesses the potential to tackle the world's most pressing security issues, as long as it fortifies itself against challenges from Russia, from China, from, of course, neo-populist leaders like Donald Trump who despise it, from endless misinformation and cyber attacks. This is why I think we need new security arrangements based upon the NATO model. Security arrangements around information. NATO has worked, and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I think we need to keep the NATO branding, even if we're going to branch out into dealing with cybersecurity or other security challenges. And that these magical four letters are something that people can rally around and they trust. So exactly. I don't want to mess with the secret no, sauce. This is very much in addition to as opposed to replacing. NATO is great for collective security. It's also a very, very successful brand. Let's not mess with it. So what can we learn from how NATO became such a successful brand? I think it's that it operates within its narrow remit and stays out of thorny political questions as a way to remain unbelievably popular. What can this teach us about how to forge new collective institutions to tackle other problems of the commons. What implementable policy solutions are there to ensure that NATO can stand the test of time and serve as a model for forging consensus approaches among differing communities and nation states? It's time to draw some lessons in our Ordering the Disorder section of the show. Here's Charles Kupchan again. I would be careful about shoveling too much onto NATO's agenda. It's got its hands full dealing with the war in Ukraine, admitting Finland and Sweden, procuring weaponry, and it has moved into new areas like cybersecurity. But I don't think that we should assume that NATO is the appropriate venue for everything. And in fact, I would probably move toward some kind of new, whether you call it a contact group or a directorate, some kind of new format that is able to fill the gap. Because there are lots of new issues here that need to be addressed, and there isn't necessarily a forum where they are being addressed. And, and we're seeing institutional innovation like this Quan. Right. The U.S., India, Australia, Japan, that's an example of where we're just kind of doing this on the fly. And I also think that because 
we are headed into this era of global disorder, we may need more flexible and informal groupings. It's not surprising to me that if you look back at the last few decades, some of the most successful diplomatic initiatives have been the little ones, the small groups, the six-party talks on Korea, the P5 plus one on the Iran nuclear deal, the contact group. These strike me as ways of putting at the table the players that need to be there and fashioning the agenda as you go. I think we're headed into a period of international fluidity that is going to require that kind of innovation and flexibility. So we've heard how NATO is much more than just a defensive alliance or some bureaucrat sitting in Brussels pushing paper and making sure that French missiles can fit on American planes. NATO is a concept, it's an ideal, and it's something that motivates people. I think today was really relevant because what we're learning now with Ukraine, with the reemergence of contemporary conflict, is that NATO is not just a dead letter institution that was only relevant during the Cold War. It is, if anything, perhaps even more relevant now. Without bipolarity, when disordering states like Russia are more willing to take aggressive action, colonial, imperialist action against their neighbors. I think NATO is more than just a military alliance. It is a symbol of the type of collective action that sits at the heart of everything we talk about on this podcast. And it sits at the heart of everything that we believe is right and just. In other words, individuals, communities, and nations working together to protect each other. All for one and one for all. Please follow The Disorder Show so you too can learn how to call your enemies bluff. You can do that by just following on whatever platform, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts that you're listening to. Please also follow us on Twitter. We are at Disorder Show. Just as it takes a village to raise a child, and the entire international system to coordinate to fix the enduring disorder, it takes a lot of people working together to make the Disorder Podcast. First thanks go to our producer, George McDonough. Then our executive producer at Goalhanger, Neil Fern. My former program manager, Zena Starbuck. And Guy Fiends. To all who've participated, you too have helped order the disorder. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm David Patrick Harakos, wishing you an orderly week.